Good morning. Everybody's got your Bible open to Mark 11 still, hopefully. And uh, we're going to continue through that same section that uh, Michael just read for us. We're going to kind of continue beyond that this morning uh, in just a moment. So before we get into God's Word, though, I do want to show you something. Um, on the screen here in just a moment, I want to show you something. I, as a child of the 80s, growing up in the 80s, as I prepared uh, for the message this morning, uh, for some reason, perhaps you'll see why, I don't know, <laughs> for some reason this came to mind. So check it out and see if you remember this one. It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call a single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. Where's the beef? Anybody remember those? There's a whole series of them, right? That was one of the classics right there. Um, so as I was preparing this week uh, for the passage of Scripture we're going to study, I, that came to mind in a couple minutes, you'll see why, but you'll have to humor me. It's probably a little, little it's a bit of a stretch. Okay, uh, Mark chapter 11, and uh, I'm going to pick up at verse 11, kind of right after where we already read this morning together. As you saw in that video earlier, we're really halfway through the book of Mark, the story of the life of Jesus. We're halfway through the book, and yet all that's left is the last week of Jesus' earthly journey. So we've got uh, weeks ahead of, of studying very carefully how Jesus becomes our rescuer and what occurs in that last week of his life. All right, so Mark chapter 11, verse 11. As Jesus entered Jerusalem and, went into the, and he went to the temple, and take, note this, when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, so he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It, he just had gotten into Jerusalem, and it's almost like there's a little scouting trip here. There's a little scouting trip, almost like a, an inspection of the temple. He goes there first, even though it's late, and he, and he checks out what he sees and what he knows to be going on. Is the temple hosting true worship, he wonders? And then he goes out to Bethany, a little town just outside of Jerusalem, to stay the night before He'll return to Jerusalem again the next day. And perhaps he was going to, the, to Bethany to stay in the home of friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus spots this tree. What's going on here? He gets closer. He checks it out. He finds only leaves. And here's the part where you have to humor me. Instead of asking, where's the beef? He says, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? He gets to the tree and he wants to know. Where's the fruit? And he doesn't find any fruit, and so he declares that no one will ever eat fruit from that tree again. Whoa. It's 
Settle down, big fella. Let's see how this turns out. Skip down to verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, the next day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So what's going on with this fig tree? It seems kind of strange to us at first. Um, the Bible right there in our scripture passage, as you keep your finger in the text and we learn from God's word, it says right there in our passage that it was not the season for figs. So, so why did he curse the tree? Why does he get to it and find no fruit and he's still frustrated? Uh, maybe, maybe he's just hangry. You guys know the combination of being hungry that makes you angry? Is it just that he's, is he just hangry? Is Jesus throwing a fit because he can't find a snack? Is it, is it this waste of miraculous power? I mean, we've seen Jesus do these amazing things and healings and miracles with his power. Is this just some weird waste of his power because Jesus is in a bad mood? Does Jesus really wither the tree because he doesn't get his way? Or is there something more to this? Is there something more than meets the eye? And I'll say... Yes, there's something more. In the Old Testament, a fig tree is frequently used or is well known to be a representation of Israel, of God's people. And, and throughout, so throughout the Old Testament scriptures, you see the fig tree used as this metaphor for Israel. So Jesus cursed the fig tree as a, as a kind of a prophecy, as a kind of a foretelling of the future. He's, he's forecasting what's going to happen Jesus cursed the barren fig tree because he wanted it to become a visual parable, an illustration for what would happen to Israel. The tree portrays what he saw in Jerusalem when he went in that night before and inspected the temple and looked to see what he would find. He, he, he already knew what was happening in the temple, what he liked and didn't like. And so he curses the tree representing God's judgment against fruitless people, against people not portraying the life of God in them. Jesus makes the tree a symbol of hypocrisy. In specific, he's speaking of Israel, God's people. He makes the tree an indicator of their hypocrisy, but we could broaden that to all of us who appear fruit-bearing, whose lives look nice, but when you get below the surface, there's not actually any fruit being produced. So Jesus is declaring that instead of worship, here's what he's looking for. What is he coming to Jerusalem to find? What does he want to see in God's people? What is he looking for when he gets to the temple? Instead of finding worship and prayer and faith in God, he sees that they have turned uh, instead, to empty rituals, relying on tra traditions, and, and kind of a checkbox religion where they're just doing things for the sake of doing things. The cursed... So, so some, some read this story, and again, like we said earlier, it's a little frustrating. You kind of go, what's the deal? Why, what, why does he seem to be throwing a fit and take it out on the tree? This poor little tree. But this tree turns out to be because of Jesus' use of it, quite useful. This tree is not wasted. It became a healthy, I mean, a helpful, useful tool to our learning. It's preserved in the Bible 
as an example for us for a reason, so that we and many, many who have seen uh, the story given to us in the Bible, it's so that we can consider our lives. Are our lives fruitful or withered? So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He comes to God's people. He comes to us this morning asking, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit in our lives? And I want us to ask ourselves this morning as we continue forward, do this with me if you would. I mean, think about this. Let's engage our minds and and, and come to God's word with the intention to learn and to be changed, not just to hear a story that we've heard before, uh, not to let it just go in one ear and out the other, but if we ask ourselves this morning, do our spiritual lives, does our, our life with God, does our life following Jesus have just a good appearance? We got nice, green, shiny, leafy leaves. What do we have? We had a talky talk, we had a, a, a reedy read, and we got leafy leaves. And Derek's up here doing a preachy preach. Do our lives have a leafy appearance, but upon closer inspection, there's no fruit? There's no result of, of what God is doing in our life? There's no manifestation of, of the change he's making in us in our life? Back to your word. Chapter 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Upon returning to the temple, what does Jesus see? First, he seems something like this, ornate, majestic, this amazing structure built to portray the glory of God with marble and gold. But the magnificence of the temple and the intricacies of the ceremonies that were going on there were just hiding the reality that God's people were not displaying the kind of life, the kind of fruit, the kind of results of their life that God had called them to. He returns to the temple to see this, this majestic appearance. But underneath, he doesn't like what he sees. And what does he see? According to the passage we just read, he sees a few things going on in the court of the Gentiles. And you can see there, as we kind of panned out from the temple itself, you can see how large the court of the Gentiles is. I've seen a couple of movies that try to, you know, do a great job of portraying the life of Jesus. And I've, but I've seen this scene been done in a very small courtyard. That's a large courtyard. There's two, three football fields worth of of square footage there. This is a a large place that is called the court of the Gentiles because as Jesus just said, it was intended to be a place of prayer for all the nations, even if only 
only uh, the Jews could go in and, and, and bring certain sacrifices of worship into the temple. The court of the Gentiles was a place for all to pray. And when Jesus gets there, what does he find? Our passage just tells us he finds money changers. Why are there money changers? Because there's a temple tax and all the, those that are traveling into the temple are supposed to pay this temple tax, but you got to pay the temple tax in the appropriate currency. So wherever you're from, you got to change your currency into the proper currency. And in the process, the money changers are doing what? Making money. And then what else does Jesus find when he gets into the courtyard? A courtyard intended for prayer surrounding the, the temple. And he finds all these stalls and tables of, of people buying and selling. Well, what are they buying and selling? Well, it might have started with a good heart. It was necessary stuff. They're selling pigeons and lambs and oil and salt and all these things that were required by God's people to bring a sacrifice to the Lord. To, to bring themselves and, and bring an offering to the Lord. This was commanded and required. So, so they had to, if they had traveled a distance, they needed to purchase the animal or the supplies to make the good sacrifice. But, but there's all this commerce and noise and hustle and bustle and selling and buying and in the courtyard that was intended for prayer. And despite rules at the time that this not be a thoroughfare, the court, the court of the Gentiles was not intended to be just like a street for people to travel through. There was rules against that. And yet what it became was a shortcut. If you had to go from one part of town to the other part of town, hey, look, the easiest trip is through the court of the Gentiles. And so it was this, it was this, it was this area filled with commotion and busyness and, and religious checkbox stuff. But where's the fruit? Jesus wanted to know. Why, what sparked his anger? What sparked his frustration here? I mean, sometimes I think, don't we? I don't know. If, if you've been around church for a while, if you've heard this story for a while, it's possible that we easily overlook Jesus' frustration here. We've heard that he flipped over a table. We've heard this, the term uh, righteous anger. That's us trying to make his anger sound okay to us, right? Oh, but it was righteous. He didn't sin. Well, it's true. He didn't sin in his anger but I don't want to tone down his frustration here. I don't want to tone down that, that Jesus just flipped over a table. I mean, have you ever tried to flip over a table? It was Jesus just rolling through the camera, boop, knocked over a table. I mean, I guess he could have, but I don't think that's how it was. This was a, this was a, a wildly physical, intimidating action. So why is Jesus so frustrated why is he displaying his anger here? Jesus saw all of this stuff that we just talked about, the money changers, the, sailing and the selling and the buying and the traffic. He saw all this as a desecration of holy ground. He saw this as sin against God and sin against people who wanted to come and worship God. The bustling and the noise and the business and the circus was distracting from true worship. What was intended to be a place of true worship was reduced to legalistic ritual tradition just because. And this place that was intended for Gentiles, for all nations, for people even, not just God's chosen people, but for all people to come and to pray 
and they've put an, an obstacle. They've, they've made this, put this chaos where, where there should be prayer. So what was that question we were going to wrestle with this morning? What did I ask you to think about in your own life? Are, are, are our lives appearing leafy and fruitful? But what's really, what, what work is God really doing in our lives? Just because we look good, just because we have a certain appearance, doesn't mean our, our lives and our hearts are pleasing to God. So what does that look like? Um, you know, we don't need to do a million examples here, but what, is, what am I talking about? What are, what are, what's an example of, of, a, of an appearance that's leafy and green and shiny, nice leaves and a really nice-looking fig tree, but then when you get closer, we find a life that isn't producing what God wants for you, what his good purposes include. You know, I think, I think of individually, I think one example I think of as individuals is, is something like church attendance. We come, we sit, we check the box of having been, perhaps, not all of us, but perhaps some. But are, are we just doing that just because we always have or because we think we should? Or are, are we here because our lives are surrendered to Jesus and we want to be with him and with his people? And what about us as a church family? You know, there, there, there are places of worship that are they're bustling with activity, buildings full of activities and lots going on and people coming and going. But are people meeting and following the God-man? Are people being rescued? Are people being taken from death to life? Are people being rescued from the darkness and taken into the light of life with God? Is that happening within our church family, within other churches that are teaching the Bible and pointing people to Christ. I've been around churches that, that got to the times of year for baptism, and I've been around churches that have been disappointed by the number of people being baptized. And, and in some ways, that's understandable. I mean, if you're looking forward to a baptism celebration, which, by the way, is not the way that we get saved. You don't get saved by getting dunked in the water. You get saved by Jesus changing your life and becoming a follower of him, right? But baptism is so significant because it's this, it's this way of saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. I trust in him. I've given my life to him. And we come to the times of year in some of our churches where there's to be baptisms, and when we find out there's zero or, or one or two, we're disappointed. And in some ways, that's understandable, but who are we going to baptize if God isn't having us share his love and good news with those that are hurting. In a room like this with so many people who have been around church for a long time, there's oftentimes not a lot of people to baptize. But there's 15,000 people in Dallas. There's I don't know how many people in Polk County that are living far apart from Christ. And God wants to use you and me to be conduits of his love and bringers of the good news of Jesus to them so that they can cross over from darkness to light, from death to life. And then we'll have some baptisms to celebrate, wouldn't we? Then we would go from appearance to fruitfulness. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you 
and appointed you to go and bear fruit. So what's this bearing fruit all about? Jesus didn't find fruit on the fig tree. We get that kind of fruit. If Jesus is coming to you and I this morning looking for fruitfulness in our life as we follow God, as we get to know God, as we are changed by God, there is to be fruit in our lives. And I think we can look at this a couple of different ways. What are, what are a couple of different ways our lives are to be fruit-bearing? First of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, God himself, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of you. If you have entrusted your life to Jesus, if you've said, I can't do this on my own, I need you, Jesus. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died and rose again. If you entrust your life to him, the Holy Spirit, God himself, I don't, it's wild to imagine, but it's true. God himself by his spirit dwells within you. And he's changing you and making you new from the inside out. Not only are we saved from, from, from sin and death, but we're, we're given life now and life eternal And the Spirit changes us from the inside out, giving us new heart, new desires. And so one way that our lives will bear more fruit as we walk with Jesus over time and he continues to change us, we see in Galatians 5 what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are things like those. Love, our lives increasing in love and joy and peace and patience. and Any of those come natural for you? They come natural for some of us in varying degrees, and then there's a bunch of them that don't come natural. But as the Spirit transforms us, as we walk with Jesus and we surrender our life to him, we increase in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we also, friends, bear fruit as we share God's love and the good news of Jesus. Because not only are we, are we to bear fruit in our own lives, our, our, in our growing character, our likeness of Jesus, but you'll see on the screen Romans 1.16, we also bear fruit as we share the gospel. The good news of Jesus is, is, is power for salvation. So when our words, when our words and our actions are used by God for others to meet and follow Jesus, we're bearing fruit individually and as a church family when you and I are used by God to bring others to new life in Jesus We are bearing fruit. So in our passage, Jesus doesn't see true worship of him. He comes to the temple and he doesn't see true worship. He's angry. He doesn't see fruitfulness that should come from life with God. And so he means business. We talked about he's physically intimidating here. He rolls up his sleeves. He does what he needs to do to spur people toward lives of holiness. He wants more for them. It's great that they're coming to the temple to sacrifice to God. It's great that they're striving to obey God's commands. And yet Jesus comes and says, there's so much more I have for you. As you follow me, as you get to know our loving heavenly father, there's so much more I have for you. And so he's, he's, he's instilling fear, it seems. It's, it's, this, is pretty, this scene that we just read about in our Bibles is pretty startling. It's, it seems like it's almost a wake-up call. 
because we can't allow empty ritual or tradition to take the place of true worship. We can't come to church because we always have. We can't just stand or consume and then leave. We can't create barriers for others to come and meet Jesus. What are ways that we as Christians accidentally create barriers that prevent people from meeting Jesus? I think it's when we click together and we're only around our our good friends and our fellow Christians. Why, if I am apart from Jesus and I come in here and and I encounter clicks and a certain degree of warmth and welcome, but then really no ability to find a friend? I don't know if that's anybody's experience, but I'm saying what if. And I think our Christianese language is a barrier for people far from Jesus too. When we speak in certain words and we we use Christian language, we're, we're very confusing and it's a barrier to those who need to know of God's love for them. So Jesus is serious business in this passage. There's a wake up call there for us. But does he want us to be motivated only by fear? No, that doesn't work. The law, the law cannot save. Rules cannot save. The law, God's laws, they help us to make better choices. They help us to honor God. But it's only God that can fill us with his love for other people. Right? It's only God that can do that within us. Jesus wants us to be, you know, when he comes so starkly aggressive and bold and intimidating in this passage, yes, he wants us to be aware of the reality of coming judgment, that our lives will will be judged by God. He wants us to be aware of the spiritual dangers of being apart from him. Living life apart from Jesus has danger ahead, and Jesus doesn't want that for us. So he comes speaking boldly and loudly, But he doesn't want us to just live in fear. He wants an appropriate fear to tutor us to love. He wants an awe of him to bring us to a place that we know how much he loves us and wants to help us and wants to change us. The more we obey, the more we walk closely with Jesus, the more we will be motivated by love. His love for us, his love through us to others. So when Jesus speaks and acts against what he sees at the temple, there's some different reactions. Let's look back in the passage here, verse 18. There's some different reactions to this bold move in the court of the Gentiles. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes, these are the leaders, the religious leaders of the time, they heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. For they feared him because all the crowd, and because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then skip to verse 21, and I want to see how the disciples respond. Or what does the disciple, what does Jesus have for his disciples here? Peter remembers and says, hey, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So Jesus' answer to him is, Have faith in God. The religious leaders react in fear and wanting to get rid of Jesus because his frustration is going against all of their religious checkbox ways. 
So when the disciples are going, what's going on? What's up with the fig tree? Jesus says, have faith in God. Commit your life to Jesus. Give your life. Live your life for the sake of Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, if they're wanting to know how to produce fruit, if they are thinking, well, yeah, what's up with the withered tree? Why'd you do that? What was it supposed to show us? Oh, I'm supposed to have more fruit in my life. But notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, yeah, try harder to develop fruit in your life. You need to be more kind. You need to try harder to have more self-control. That's not what Jesus says here. He doesn't say that we should go, I got this. I'm good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to will fruit into my life out of sheer effort. My life is just going to have fruit flying out of it, and I'm going to have all these people follow Jesus just because I'm really trying hard. That's what you and I try to do, but that's not what Jesus said here. What he says to his disciples and he says to you and I this morning is to have faith in a great God who makes this happen in our lives. Romans 5.10 tells us, it's on the screen, if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved, continued to be saved, transformed, made into the likeness of Jesus by his life. We talk a lot about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? He lived, he died, he made us right with God, he brought about the forgiveness of sin, and yet his victorious resurrection from the dead speaks so loudly to us too because his life shows us that we can have life and that we'll be, continue to be saved by his life. Our spiritual growth, increasing worship in our life, fruitfulness, living a life that is glorifying to Jesus is a work of God. It's not something that we try hard to accomplish. It's a work of God in our life. As you have faith, as you trust God for help, Friends, this is what I urge you this morning. We need to put our faith in God. We need to trust that God can remove the obstacles that are hindering our worship and that are hindering our fruitfulness. We need to walk closely with Jesus so that, so that we have life with God and so that his work in our life removes these things that hinder us from living a fruitful life. So I urge you to entrust yourself to Jesus so that God will work in you and begin making you new, empowering you to live for him. Because fruit bearing is a work of God. Um, but we can put ourselves in position. We can put ourselves in position to meet with God, to walk closely with Jesus. So what is it that we um, want to do in those lines? How can we put ourselves in position to grow? How do we grow in relationship with Jesus so that our lives are lived in worship and in bearing fruit? Look with me at verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. We see that 
One way we grow in our faith in God, Jesus said, have faith in God. One of the ways we grow in our faith in God is by coming to him in prayer. And do we really ask for just anything? Does that verse we just read that ask in prayer and you'll have it? Does that mean we can really ask for anything, just whatever we want? Well, something I studied this week reminds us that there are some things that Christians should not ask for and some things that God will not give. But those of us that are parents may relate to this a little bit, right? As a parent gives to a child from our wisdom of what they need and what's good for them, so does God. So we're to ask according to his will. We need to take that posture of Jesus when he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, the God-man himself, submitted himself to the will of the Father, said, I want to live for you and your desires. Verse 25 says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so the Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. We are not perfect. The people around us are not perfect as we come to God in prayer and God brings a situation to mind, we are to forgive because God forgives us. So how do we walk closely with Jesus? How do we grow in faith? We can talk to him in prayer. And I think just the fact that we're encouraged there to seek forgiveness or to offer forgiveness to others kind of reminds me that we're, we live the Christian life in community. We live it around other followers of Jesus. We're created to live in relationship with God and relationship with others. So another way that God works in our life is as we have opportunities to live life on life with other followers of Jesus, as we have opportunities to live in community with other followers of Jesus. So I want you this morning to know my heart for you. Some of you um, have this opportunity. You're connected in our church family in a way that brings these things into your life. But I can't tell you enough how I urge you to connect beyond this gathering. If this is all this church family represents for you, you're missing out on the richness that God has for you and your increased faith and worship and fruitfulness as you, as you are connected with a smaller group of fellow Jesus followers. And so many of you have a small group or, 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 or a, a class at the, during the 9 a.m. hour that you have relationships with people. I want you, I can't urge you enough, this is a passion of my heart, for you to have a place where you are known by others and where you can uh, know others, where you can know and be known. We need that in our lives. And so if you're already connected during the 9 a.m. hour or if you already are connected to a community life group, then great. Continue those relationships. Look for what God has for you as you dig in and you spur one another on in following Jesus. But if you are not connected already to a group that, that kind of makes this larger church family a little smaller, this is a great celebration on Sunday mornings. It's fun to be together as a, a larger church family and to celebrate and to greet each other and to pray together and to sing together. But I'm urging you to find a way to make the church a little smaller for yourself by connecting to a place, a group, where you can know and be known. And so um, 
You'll see in your bulletin there's some information about this. I just want to mention it now. Uh, This is an area of passion for me. And so the next three Sundays uh, at 9 a.m., if you're not, especially, all of you are invited, but, but especially if you're not connected to an ABF or CLG, you know, if you already have a, a connection during the 9 a.m. hour, go to your class. That's awesome. And we're gonna, you're going to hear some of these same things from me in other ways. But if you don't have a group that you're connected to, I'd invite you to come check this out the next three Sundays at 9 a.m. in the community center. I just want to share with you some things that I'm excited about that God's doing in my life. And, and, those, and a lot of that has to do with how God wants us to be connected in our church family and how that will help us follow him and live for him in our lives. So um, check that out if you want to. Because Jesus is looking for worship. He's looking for true worship. He's looking for fruitfulness in our lives. But we don't have to just try harder or feel guilty that we're not doing enough. God, it's a work of God. He wants to do it in and through you. So as you have faith in God, as you trust him for removing the things in your life that are getting in the way of worship and fruitfulness, as you entrust yourself to Jesus, friends, God works in you, making you new and empowering you to live a fruitful life. Let's pray. Father God, we just recognize how much we need you. Heavenly Father, you are great and mighty, and on high. And yet, God, we are so thankful. We worship you in in thankfulness because you came near to us. You demonstrate your love for us through sending your Son. You demonstrated your love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we thank you for the cross where the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus points us to new life, life with you. Father God, thanks for the reminders this morning in the passage that apart from you, we can do nothing, that, that apart from you, our, our lives will look withered and fruitless. But Lord, in you, in Jesus, we can have life and we can honor you in worship and we can live lives that are fruitful for you. So teach us, God, to walk with you. Help us to draw near to you. God, we thank you for giving us the word, the Bible. Would you help us to be in it? Would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to come to you? Teach us the significance of living in community with other Christians so that our lives will result in increased worship, in increased fruitfulness, God, not not so that we can be impressive, but so that you can be lifted high. Change us, Lord. Make us more like Jesus so that we will do and say things that honor you so that we will be increasingly fruitful, so that we will point others to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.